Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Evening Words. I'm your guest host, Dara Lise Lyons, about to launch into a really exciting conversation with Dionysia Robertson, the Associate Editor of Community Narratives at Resolve Philly. Um, welcome, Dionysia. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you, Dara Lise. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, you recently told a very moving, um, very personal story at Philadelphia Story Fest, um, or at least elements of your story. And I'm really curious sort of what led you to be willing to be so vulnerable. And maybe if you could tell folks a little bit about the story that you told. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll start with the kind of what the gist of the story was. Um, I kind of drew some parallels between my own childhood experiences of um, unsheltered and transient homelessness mm -hmm. um, with the hostility um, like leveled at people who are unhoused and unsheltered. Mm -hmm. Specifically, um, a recent news story from May of this past year, Jordan Neely, who was an unsheltered man in New York City, um, he was murdered on the New York subway in broad daylight. Um, and the kind of narrative around that act of violence was that folks on the subway felt threatened by his presence. Um, he was shouting, but he was shouting, I'm hungry. Um, mm -hmm. And that was enough for bystanders on the train to take action, like physical action against him. And it resulted in his death. And I was entirely shaken up by that story. Um not because I was surprised. And that was essentially what I had shared at StoryFest. It was my entire childhood experience of unsheltered homelessness did actually come with very many experiences of um, unprompted hostility from housed folks. And by and large, the rationale that I would hear for those acts of unprompted violence was that uh, folks felt threatened by my presence or by the presence of my family. Um, and so that was the parallel I drew. And I explained how, as a child, I figured it out pretty early on that a presenting as a very vulnerable person does make you a target um, in a lot of areas. And so I learned how to mask that desperation for survival purposes um, and got really, really, really good at it, you know, until what happened to Jordan Neely um, was made public, but was not, I didn't feel a sense of communal outrage. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, it didn't make the news in Philadelphia really. And that I think was the turning point for me. You know, I was like, this is treated like just another one of these incidents that happens all the time. And the difference between me back then and me now is that I have access to any number of platforms on which to say, this isn't right. Let's, let's examine and rethink the way that we internalize these acts of violence um, against people who are vulnerable um, and impoverished. So that was both the story and a little bit of what the impetus was. Um, and I, I came to have the opportunity through a partnership between Resolve and Back Pocket Media, who are the ones who put on Philly Story Fest. Um, and so just in the course of that partnership, 
um, it, you know, I was like, Hey, I have a story to tell. And I don't think I realized at first that story fest would center on my personal narrative. Mm-hmm. I think I heard narrative and was like, Oh, great. This is like a wonderful opportunity to bring folks up on the stage with me. Um, maybe people who I'd written with in the past yeah. for my role, but, um, no, I, I found out that it was something a lot more personal and I, I, I decided it was time. Yeah. I say that kind of glibly because, you know, I had a ton of support. My editor, Jean Son, basically held my hand through the whole decision process um, and was a big part of the reason I wasn't terrified up there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm going to ask you more about your story and about uh, the tragic incidents that happened to Jordan, that murder and and are happening to other people yeah. in terms of the violence that's being inflicted on folks who are vulnerable. But just to backtrack a moment, let's talk about what Resolve Philly does, because, you yeah. know, because it's sort of a very interesting take on journalism. And, and so, yeah, can you speak a bit about Resolve Philly? For sure. Um, I think Resolve does so many things. We have a bunch of initiatives um, and projects that are springing up every day. So I think the way that I explain what we are to people, that's kind of in a nutshell, is um, Resolve is a nonprofit newsroom organization that works um, particularly through like community engagement endeavors and initiatives to bridge the trust gap between communities in Philadelphia and the local media that serves them. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we know that there has been a lot of historical harm done to marginalized communities, not just in Philadelphia, but in, in general, and that local media has played its part in that. Um, and so the work of Resolve is really just to figure out ways to bring journalists and media closer to community members um, so that media actually is serving communities um, in a timely, actionable and life affirming way. Um, that's a really big nutshell, but I think that's the most that's the most simplistic way that I can boil it down. Yeah. Well, and you make such a poignant um, point about the role of journalists and the complicity, perhaps, of journalism in creating narratives that have been unhelpful or have supported the victor, perhaps. And I'm wondering, like, what uh, kind of what role you think journalism played in Jordan Neely's murder and the depictions of that. And I think that the lack of social outrage around that. Absolutely. Um, it's a it's a multifaceted role there. Um, and it, it goes back a long, long way. Part of my my desire to even be in a journalism space is because I've been a lifelong member of a community of people who've been harmed by the media. It's the stereotyping and the just the really alarmist sort of um, pictures that media and pop culture yeah. paint of people who are vulnerable and impoverished. Um, so, you know, you're if you're a vulnerable, a vulnerable and impoverished person and you're desperate, you have images of how dangerous you are to contend with. And it's very difficult to get empathy or help from people who've already been made to feel like you're a problem or you're a threat or just your very existence is a symptom of, you know, a, a broken society. 
And so I think that's definitely a big part of the role is helping to propagate those stereotypes that do so much harm to people who don't have a platform or a loud, strong communal voice Mm. uh, with which to try to debunk some of those really harmful images. And I think that's where you get this sort of community sense of well, you know, it's it's not in my neighborhood or mm. it's not my family or, you know, people going through things like this are unknowable. And so these aren't things that affect me. And it's it's it really does tend to undermine empathy. Um, and people who are unsheltered and impoverished are not the only people who have suffered that way, that specific way from harmful stereotypes in local media. Um, the other front is definitely, I think, the absence of reporting in other spaces. I saw a lot of stories coming out um, about Jordan Neely, but almost exclusively from New York, which is where it happened. Um, And there were protests, but again, localized almost exclusively in New York. And that to me is, that silence almost says more than like a token statement ever could. um, That, you know, this New York City is our neighbor and the murder of an innocent person happened in broad daylight. And I feel like Philadelphia has shown outrage for exactly that sort of thing before. Um, And so to me, it felt like a stark difference that nobody was getting as angry as I was over a very similar incident, but one that happens to someone who doesn't have a community to rally around him or is not someone who's been able to like buy esteem in society and, it just felt patently unfair. Um, I think the media could have done more to try and create some parallels. Even if we we could amplify similar situations that happened in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and draw the lines between why this is a problem that needs to be addressed all over. Um, but we didn't do that. And I, I think that was a major failure. Yeah. Well, and I'm interested in, you mentioned the word community a number of times, and I know that you're the associate editor of Community Narratives. And I'm curious about like how community gets defined and shaped. And to to your point, I think some people are sort of siloed or considered not members of, of community in a way that is very harmful to them and harmful to the communities that they are a part of or could be a part of. Yep. Absolutely. Um, my, I think my The one thing that I do try to bring up the most, um, you know, in random conversations Mm. uh, is just kind of trying to introduce the notion of thinking of people who are unsheltered in a in a neighborhood, we'll say, as community members and as neighbors, because, you know, a neighborhood is a locality, but a community is like a a way of living Mm. and it is a feeling and it is a state. And you're absolutely right that there are groups and individuals who are excluded from the definition of community. Um, And it is really harmful. It's extremely harmful. So I think in, in my case, I've always said that the unsheltered population is one that's really difficult to call a community only because the things that you would need in place to really establish a community as it's defined don't exist for people who are transient or unstable. Um, And I think that's, that's it, right? It's proximity, it's stability, it's a sense of accountability for people who are around you. And so I think communities can pop up in, um, you know, like places where 
maybe the it's they're not designed to be community spaces. I'm thinking specifically of like tent communities, mm-hmm. you know, where pretty much everyone there has been excluded in some way from mainstream or sheltered community, mm-hmm. but have still managed to not be a community, but perform community, mm-hmm. which is is what I'm trying to get at, that it's more of a set of actions um, and set of obligations to other people. And I think until housed and comfortable folks um, can actually define people who can't buy their way into society as neighbors and as community members, then we're kind of always going to run up against that conversation. You're listening to Word Radio on 900 AM, 96.1 FM, streaming live on wordradio.com, Facebook Live, and the Word Radio app. This is Evening Words. I'm your guest host, Daryl Lyons, in conversation with Dionysia Robertson, the Associate Editor of Community Narratives at Resolve Philly. Um, you know, uh, Dio, you, you mentioned community being like a way of living and, and in some ways an attitude and embodiment. And I, you know, one of the things that I think about is when certain identities come to the forefront, right? Whether it be blackness or gender or a person's identity as an unhoused person or, you know, or disability or whatever that, um, everything else kind of recedes, right? And the, and all of the, other elements of that person cease to be visible to those observing them, right? And I'm yes. curious kind of what role you think that plays in being able to kind of see the wholeness of a person and embrace them for their wholeness. Yeah, um, that's an excellent question. I think I've I've complained about this a little bit. Um, I love that, you know, communities are springing up um, pretty much everywhere along every line of identity that you can think of. But I also do worry sometimes that that does equip us to see one another in that really one dimensional kind of way Mm -hmm. where, you know, as you say, when an element of identity is brought to the forefront, the other ones do tend to recede. And I think that is, that's an issue of the, of the beholder, (laughs) you know, kind of like, the the willingness to understand and appreciate that people are multidimensional mm-hmm. and that, you know, the elements of their identity that either do resonate with you or don't resonate with you are just elements. Um, and having the patience and the willingness to kind of sit for the whole, um, I think that's the tricky part. And I also think that that's the power of storytelling. That's why narratives mean so much to me. They they kind of are our way of tapping into that human superpower of empathy and understanding and closeness. I don't think that anyone moves a stranger closer to understanding another than a personal story, you know, because we we are as human beings, we are fairly limited capacity machines. And so like our commonalities overlap everywhere. And there is something of me in every single person and something of every single person in me. And I think that the times that we really get to unlock that power and access that closeness are when we are sharing our narratives, when we are sharing our personal stories. Um, it really does feel like a superpower because it does have this transformative energy. Um, And I I think, I think that's the core of it is stopping and being willing to understand people as people. Um, And that, that involves kind of like leveling up to this kind of radical empathy um, that 
I think we've given ourselves license in general not to really demonstrate, mm. um, but I think it's necessary when dealing with people and making them feel like they belong. So what is a community narrative? Like, how do you how do you define that? What does that even mean? So when we first developed this role, um, it is it, it encapsulates first person narratives, but it started out as just kind of one dimension of first person narrative. And that dimension was op-eds. Um, and it made sense and still makes sense now because Resolve has partnerships with 29 uh, newsrooms in Philadelphia. So if including a word, member, so just shout out, shout out. To yeah, word including word, including word. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and it makes it really easy then because if we're talking about access. You know, community members gaining access to local platforms. Twenty nine is huge. Yeah. You know, and so it really is just meeting community members, meeting folks. Everyone has a story to tell, and providing the moral support the editorial support, the compositional support to folks who need it to tell their story and get it seen and published on any one of those platforms. So that's a community narrative and that's how it started. But we all know that there are way more dimensions to first person narrative mm. than just op-eds. Yeah. And you know, that, that style and that delivery doesn't necessarily resonate with everyone. Um, and so I am looking uh, really vigorously in the, in the new year to kind of expand what that means for folks. Is that a multimedia element? Are we talking about audio? Are we talking about people with an artistic bent singing or performing poetry as their first person narrative? Yes. And <laughs> so I, I really want to kind of throw the, the doors open on that. Oh, I love that. And so like, how does someone who has a story to tell kind of get in touch and what are the criteria or whatever for working with you to tell a narrative? Yes. Oh, that's great. I'll start with the criteria because there aren't that many. Okay. You just need to be a, an individual, you know, um, I suppose from Philadelphia, okay. although as community narratives progresses and we accumulate more partnerships, I imagine that we may be able to expand our scope outside of the city. Mm -hmm. um, but as of now, it is Philadelphians who do not have access, like professional or personal regular access to like a comms department or they, they aren't an active part of the news. Mm -hmm. So essentially, it's folks who are removed from the media landscape who don't have easy access and who would like help removing some of the barriers to telling their own stories. Um, and so criteria doesn't even really seem like the right word to use on that because it is more or less everyone in Philadelphia. Um, just talk to me. And the easiest way to do that is by email. Um, there are two different emails and they both come to me. Okay. And the easiest one is narratives at resolvephilly.org. Um, and the other one is just my first name, which is Dionysia, D-I-O-N-I-C-I-A at resolvephilly.org. And both of those go directly to my inbox. So if you think you have an idea or you don't know if you have an idea or you'd like to talk to generate an idea mm -hmm. or you have a draft at any stage, please I'd love to, I would love to talk to you. Yeah, I love that. You know, some of the most impactful stories I've ever heard have been told by people that didn't think that they had a story to tell yeah. or that didn't feel like 
they had a platform or a voice or an opportunity. And one of the things that, you know, back to our conversation about journalism and media, and I'm a journalist, I love journalism. Like I'm a big fan, I think we do great things. And one of the things that I have found is they're sort of like the go-to experts, right? Like the people who get yes. called all the time on Indigenous People's Day to talk about Indigenous people, the, the people yes. who get called on MLK Day to talk about like, you know, and um, and apply that to anything, these sort of standard experts that are trotted out to give their opinion as though it were fact. And I think something is lost sometimes when we don't go to folks that maybe aren't often asked for their perspective, but who Absolutely. I think have a richness of perspective to offer. Absolutely. And all we're doing when we do that is teaching people that they don't have expertise or credibility that is worth listening to. And that's absolutely not true. It was when I joined Resolve that I first heard the expression lived experience is expertise. And it's the kind of thing that you sort of suspect (laughs) philosophically in your heart. Um, But I hadn't heard it made explicit to me until I started at Resolve. And that is that is a principle that we know to be absolutely true. Lived experience is expertise. And so that means that all you need to have done is to have lived something and to have felt something and observed something and you have a story to tell. Um, that's the opposite message that oftentimes we send um, as journalists and as media folks. And it's not deliberate in many cases it's it's easy you know like we we have a lot of work to do and sometimes it's just easier to have a direct line to someone or a group of people that you trust you know are credible and can give you good information and so you kind of keep going back to that well over and over and over again but that does definitely exclude entire populations of people who hold their own expertise and are just not being asked Absolutely. I have so many follow-up questions for you, Dionysia. For those listening who have questions, our call-in number is 215-634-8065. Again, that's 215-634-8065. In the midst of challenging times, our Black spaces, our voices, and our stories are under attack. So Word Radio needs your support now more than ever. We have an ambitious goal to reach a record-breaking 2,000 members by the end of the year. This is urgent and the time to act is now. Word has been a trusted source of news and information for our community for 20 years. And with your support, we can be around for another 20. So please help us move forward and make a difference for our future by visiting wordradio.com to become a member today. We're going to take a very quick break and then we're going to be right back with more from Dionysia. So stay with us. You're listening to Evening Words on WURD, Progressive Black Talk Media. Welcome back to Evening Words. I'm your host, Dara Lise Lyons, speaking with Dionysia Robertson, the Associate Editor of Community Narratives at Resolve Philly, about the power of personal uh, stories um, and the fact that lived experience is expertise, that people uh, live their lives and develop these incredible stories. Um, and Dio, I'm wondering if you can share some of the stories that you've helped others to bring forward that have meant a lot to you. And I'm sure you have brought many, many stories forward, but just like a few that that stand out. Oh, that's really kind of you to say. I'm up to seven, I think. Yeah. And I'm I'm going strong. Um, so I, I don't know if I'd call that many, many, but it definitely <laughs> feels like a mountain of really good work. So I I can think of a couple off the top of my head. Um 
One of the first that I worked on was with um, a woman named Khadija Butler. If you're listening, Khadija, hi. Shout out to Khadija. Hi, Khadija. Um, (laughs) She wrote a really, really wonderful essay about investing in black edge, like black youth education and black youth now. Um, and her personal experience is that when she was in, I think her, her first or second year at Temple University, her father was actually killed, um, by a young man. It was a, a gun violence, um, incident, um, like so many in Philadelphia and like, so many in Philadelphia, it was, it absolutely didn't have to happen. And I think the young man was actually a a minor at the time. And rather than internalizing that, that pain and that horrendous loss as bitterness or resentment or anger, she used her education and her business savvy to start a scholarship fund in her father's name that directly serves Black youth in Philadelphia um, who are low income and who, you know, apply and who might otherwise not have known that educational opportunities existed or might otherwise not have had access to them through their own school. Um, I thought it was an absolutely beautiful and brilliant way to turn pain into love. And I think about her story often and I think about her often. Um, And she was one of the first and the very first that I ever worked on was um, my friend Ramona Harris wrote an op-ed about the impact of lifetime parole on families and loved ones. Um, And that was incredibly compelling. And I learned so much. And Ramona's story was so, so impressive. She made the Sunday Inquirer front page, which is incredibly impressive. I was like, I don't know if you realize what a big deal that is, (laughs) but that's a huge deal. I was very, 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 very proud of her. Um, And you had mentioned earlier about just kind of the joy of working with people, particularly folks who maybe hadn't done a whole lot of writing before Mm -hmm. or who have sort of internalized a little, like, this is not something I can write or, or I don't do this even. And I think one of the most rewarding things about my role is hearing people say that to me, specifically Ramona and Khadija, hearing folks say that to me and then watching them create like wonderfully powerful, Mm. compelling stories um, that just really put their personhood on display. That I think is my hands down favorite part of community narratives editing. Oh, I love that. And, And that's such a different experience, right? Than if someone else came in and wrote a story, interviewed either of them and wrote a story about that. And there's value, I think, to both approaches. Um, Absolutely. And I think it does something, you know, your bio says that you studied journalism as a means to find the voice to declare your own existence and empower others to do the same. Um, And I think that's really what we're talking about is empowering people to find their voices and then find an audience for those voices. Yes, exactly. And it's about doing what we can to disintegrate those gatekeeping mechanisms that kind of distance people from that access and distance people from those platforms. Um, and that's why the the newsroom partnerships mean so much because they are local media outlets that have 
agreed, you know, in a lot of ways that community narratives means a lot to them too. Um, that's, that's huge. For the person listening who's like a little bit intrigued, a little bit fearful, doesn't think this maybe applies to them, this conversation, wonders if they have a story to tell. Any suggestions for someone, you know, to perhaps mine their own personal history for a narrative or to be willing to take that leap of even inquiring as to whether or not their story is of interest? Oh, yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, the first piece of advice I would offer is please don't dismiss the impulse to tell your story out of hand Mm -hmm. just because you can't think immediately of what that narrative would be. It does exist, I assure you. So please don't give up on it before you figure it out. Um, And secondly, I would say what drives people the most um, and what usually does make for the most powerful storytelling is what is most important to you. What are the things that you would argue for <laughs> for free on your <laughs> on your spare time, you know, all the time? What are the things that are really important and significant to you? What things do you think that you understand that you need other people to understand in order for life to be improved for everyone? I think these are really broad and very like philosophical questions. Yeah. But if you start there, then you can trace backwards to exactly what it is in you that is responding so strongly to this. And then you will find that kind of nugget of your own personal history or your own personal experience in that argument. And it's just a simple matter of listening to yourself and listening to your feelings and not disqualifying yourself before you even start, because there are more than enough mechanisms out there to do that for us. Dionysia, you know, I'm wondering, we we started off talking about Jordan Neely's murder and about, you know, sort of people being targeted on the basis of vulnerability. And also, I know that it's a very vulnerable thing to be willing to tell your story, especially if you're someone who has been told in various ways not to be vulnerable. And so how do you kind of work with folks to feel safe in in expressing themselves and their stories. Yeah. Um that's that's a tough one. I I think depending on the story, it's it can be really difficult to guarantee complete and total safety. Mm-hmm. Um even uh even just using Storyfest yeah. as an example, I there were lots of supports around me in both like people there to, to listen to me and to help me, you know, shape the narrative that I, I wanted to deliver and to kind of like help em- emotionally ease my way. But there was always a chance that there was someone in that audience of what, 600 people yeah. who held those prejudices that had impacted my entire life. Mm. And I didn't necessarily think on the surface of my mind that I was going to incur any immediate wrath Mm -hmm. or any immediate blowback. But my experience was such that I didn't know. It wasn't entirely outside the realm of possibility. Um, There was no way, I think, to guarantee my complete and total safety. And even just walking up those steps and taking that stage felt like, jumping out of a plane with a parachute you didn't check. Yeah, but yeah. I 
I felt like this, like what I was saying needed to be said. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people out there who feel the same. So as a journalist, what I can do is work with a person to make sure that they're not being extracted from, that what they're sharing is what they want to share. And that ultimately what they end up sharing makes them feel empowered rather than disempowered. And that just means putting in the work to build the relationship, like create an actual relationship with a person that I'm working with so that I can intuit. I have a sense of what those things are. And I think that's, that would be, I think the bare minimum of fulfilling my role as a journalist, but also just being there. Like I I wasn't kidding before when I said uh, moral support is a big part of my job, just being there for a person and letting them talk out their story and letting them talk out their fears Mm -hmm. and come to determinations on their own is a big chunk of it. It's a big part of that relationship. And so I'm, I'm reluctant to say that there even is any such thing as complete and total Mm -hmm. safety when you're taking a part of yourself that's vulnerable and laying it out for display because you can't, you can't necessarily control who's consuming your story. Um, and you can't necessarily control how they'll react, but the process doesn't have to be harmful and the process doesn't have to be frightening. Um, and I think that's, that's what I make it a point to offer more than anything. Um, because, you know, folks who have a story to tell, they want to produce a story, but they don't want to feel horrible while they're doing it. Um, and I, I completely agree. That's not what community narratives is supposed to be about. So if at the end they don't feel powerful, then we haven't done it right. Yeah. Well, and because you're developing these relationships over time, I would imagine that often you hear the story after the story. So what are some of the things that you've heard from folks that have had their pieces published, you know, when they they followed up with you about it, kind of like what has their experience been on the other side of that or how has it maybe impacted their lives? Yeah, I, I actually have not heard that much back. And a part of me is wondering if that's just because there hasn't been any real, you know, vocal feedback. Yeah. Um, but I did, I did get one person circle back around to me um, and tell me that they received a lot of Emails, I don't know if they were direct emails because I think the mechanism was that the outlet forwarded messages that were received on the platform mm. to the author. Um, and so they, they'd gotten a lot of really positive emails about the story they told, but more so that the experience empowered them to start writing regularly. And they had expressed to me that this wasn't necessarily something they were doing for publication's sake, mm. but that they really didn't they really didn't consider themselves a writer, even though they knew that they could write. And going through that experience, seeing a byline and receiving (laughs) feedback from people in the world that what they had put out there made an impact, Mm -hmm. I think was empowering enough for them that they were like, wait, I can own this. I am a writer. I've always been a writer. (laughs) And that was amazing because I was like, that's that's what I've been telling you for the past year. You've always been a writer. I know a writer when I meet one. And, you know, so I think that that was great. That was a wonderful, wonderful kind of full circle moment. Um, But I'm still curious. So if anyone out there has worked with me on an op-ed before, um, please, please, please reach out to me and tell me how that went. 
at narratives that resolve Philly, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So how do you center individual voices within a context of community? I mean, I know we've been talking about kind of like, yes, you're bringing um, individual stories forward, but kind of like, what is the community element of that in, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really... I guess, I guess it, it, it is mostly individual, but I feel like the community element comes from the fact that these individuals are from communities mm-hmm. in the city that are, I don't want to say overlooked, but I will say face an, an uncommonly high amount of barriers mm-hmm. to uh, narrative empowerment, um, narrative access. So the community really is just referring to the different groups in the city that don't hold obvious power. Yeah. Um, I feel like when we came up with the title, I, I wanted to call it community narratives to signal to journalists more so than anybody mm-hmm. that these are these are community members who hold expertise and just sort of not journalists, you know, (laughs) not journalists, not, not people from that, that kind of same well that we were talking about. Um, Those folks who are just generally in the back pocket of some journalists, but community members and whichever community, whatever that word invokes for journalists and for the outlets that I appeal to, um, to pitch these pieces, it's almost like a signal for them in that way. Um, and also just, I don't think that we actually have ever gotten an op-ed written by a group of people. Yeah. But for anyone listening, I would welcome that approach as well. Um, so I think community is just sort of the catch-all mm-hmm. as, you know, regular good folks who live here and have a story to tell about their lives and experiences. And these are their narratives. Yeah, I love that. And I think, I mean, I'm imagining myself as a reader and as a consumer. And for me, reading a narrative from a member of my community is going to impact me differently, perhaps, than reading a piece that is, you know, like a reported piece with these are five voices that I spoke with and these are what they had to say, you know, which I think, again, there is value to that. It's just there's different ways to do journalism and to and to bring stories forward. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't have to be an or, you know, like reported stories are one kind of narrative platform access Mm -hmm. and a great kind, a tried and tested kind. And community narratives gives the gives the voice not I don't, I don't want to say gives the voice because I think the the main point that I'm trying to convey here is that we're not giving or imbuing anyone mm-hmm. with anything that they don't already possess mm-hmm. so I'm reluctant to say things like community narratives empowers individuals mm-hmm. or that we're giving anyone their voice because that's intrinsic to people yeah. um, and it can't be given to them and it can't be taken away but what we can do is amplify it you know, we can create pathways to access um, so that those voices can be heard rather than suppressed or ignored. Um, and I, I think I think that allowing for that 
just kind of enriches the the journalism landscape. It 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 makes more multidimensional the angles and stories and views and perspectives that we have on one another. And it helps to provide various lenses through which to define life and experience and existence. And that can't be bad, you know, so rather than an either or, or I love the end, you know, that way and this way and any other way that community members can think of that they feel empowers them to tell their stories in the way that they feel represents them accurately there's there can never be anything bad about that. What's the story that you're currently working on? Are you able to share about any of the projects that you're currently working on? Yes, um I I won't go into too too much detail mm-hmm. simply because I don't know the rules on that sort yeah. of thing, but I am currently working um with a member of it's a group that a colleague Steve Volk and I mm. uh, created together. Steve is um, the investigative reporter at Resolve, and his beat is child welfare. And so together, he and I created a group called the Our Kids Vision Hub. And Our Kids refers to the name of Steve's beat. Um, and the Vision Hub is sort of like an advisory board plus asterisk sort of group <laughs> yeah. um, that we we meet monthly. We have extremely in-depth conversations. And each of these folks um, holds lived experience and expertise mm-hmm. on foster care, juvenile justice, um, child welfare. And so one of the members of that group um, is currently working on an op-ed about her experience with child welfare and how in spite of, you know, really ever-present um, social services involvement in her life and in her family, that she was still never offered any of the resources, family guidance resources or family support resources that she felt would have made her a stronger parent um, when she was facing challenges dealing with her oldest. And ultimately, um, her oldest ended up dying by gun violence at 22. And so her piece questions if, you know, her family really did have access to the support and the resources um, that, you know, should have been available to them during that time, would outcomes for her son have been different? And, you know, it it ends it on that question and raises some extremely compelling points. And it is a very, very, very personal story. Um, And it's it's in in the making now we finished editing and it's about to get placed. So you know, I think that's the limit of what I can say. No, I and I hope that you'll come back or let us know, you know, like what happens to that story. Let me know. I'll 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 put it on social media because I think that is a really compelling story. And all of the stories that you mentioned today have been very compelling, have been very um, uh, revealing, I think, about the nature of our world in Philadelphia and um and some of the challenges that people face and and some of the things that could perhaps be done to make things better um, for folks. Uh, You're listening to Word Radio on 900 AM, 96.1 FM, streaming live on wordradio.com, Facebook Live, and the Word Radio app. I'm speaking with Dionysia Robertson, the Associate Editor of Community Narratives at Resolve Philly. We're gonna take a very quick break and then be right back. Thank you, Dio. You're listening to Evening Words on WURD, Progressive Black Talk Media. 
Welcome back to Evening Words. I'm your guest host, Dara Elise Lyons, speaking with Dionisia Robertson, the Associate Editor of Community Narratives at Resolve Philly. And Dio, right before the break, um, you were you all the stories that you've shared have been emotionally charged, very vulnerable. Um, you know, and and I'm curious, you know, I believe that the best stories are evocative and also that sometimes when people are digging deep into their emotional well, that there's a level of self-care that it serves them to practice. And so I'm wondering kind of any suggestions that you have for others in terms of practicing self-care while telling their stories and how how did you practice self-care as you were sort of getting ready for StoryFest? That's that's such a great question. Um, I think that's not something that had ever occurred to me again before I started at Resolve. Yeah. Um, pretty early on in my tenure there, we um, enlisted a partnership with um, this team of clinical social workers. Shout out to Team Ibis. Um, and they they delivered a couple of workshops about trauma-informed care, which was a concept that, once again, was totally foreign to me um, until Resolve. And the way that they had framed that for us was journalism as a care practice and how can we implement trauma-informed care when we are building relationships with community members and when we are, you know, working with someone to share their story. And so they it's some of it is really straightforward stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, help to create an an environment that is conducive to sharing by just listening. You know, deep listening is a big part of it. As a journalist, when you know that someone is having to dig very, very, very deep for something that you need or something that you've asked them for, um, it is best practice to give them as much arena as they need to just talk to you. And listen, you know, for understanding, not necessarily for action. And on the other side of that, as I had the opportunity to experience with, you know, developing the story for StoryFest is just kind of being being aware of what your boundaries are um, as a storyteller, just being aware of that sort of line between when you feel like what you're sharing is making you feel like you know, you're being informative and it's making you feel empowered versus that kind of line of demarcation when you start feeling like you've given more than the environment is equipped to handle. And, you know, maybe the person you're talking to is not trauma informed by by profession or by vocation. And so you've ended up, you know, accidentally crossing your own boundary and there's no one in your immediate environment who can help deescalate what you're going through. So I think before that, even happens in as much as it's possible to just kind of be aware of what your own boundaries are in that story. How much are you willing to share? And to know that you have the option to say, no, that's too much. No, I'm not willing to speak about that. No, that's not something I'm comfortable saying in public or, you know, saying in print. That is absolutely okay. And that is your, your power and your right as a storyteller. Um, so that, that I think is, it sounds really basic and really obvious, but when, when you've just kind of a not been accustomed to sharing your own, um, very deep, very personal story, 
it's it doesn't occur to you as a rule. Mm. And so hearing someone say, yeah, you actually have the power to draw those boundaries. It's like a giant light bulb going off over your head and you go, yes, that's right. I don't have to hurt myself in this process. Mm. Um, and I think that really is what trauma informed care is about is just creating creating boundaries so that whatever you're doing doesn't cause you the maximum amount of harm. Mm. And that looks different for everyone. For some folks, it's taking pauses, you know, measured pauses during a conversation, or it's putting a piece down and not looking at it for however long you need to take your mind off of it mm. before you revisit it again. Um, and on again, on the journalist side, knowing what that looks like for each person that you're working with really does just come down to listening to them and being being really present so that you can you can be observing you know has the mood shifted do they seem in distress and responding responding to those humanistically and kindly in the moment mm-hmm. um i think those are kind of the the tenets of trauma informed care in journalism and in storytelling just sort of boiled down to a really obvious sounding nutshell. Well, yeah, I mean, obvious sounding perhaps. And yesterday I had a conversation with Rakia Mays, who's the host of the podcast Real Black News. And she uh, said the quote, which I've heard before, but not for a long time, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And I was Mm. thinking about, you know, I was just sort of mentally contrasting that approach with the approach that you're taking in your work. And I think the approach of Resolve at large, which is trauma-informed and supportive of the storyteller, as opposed to kind of trying to get perhaps the most racy headline. Yeah, yes, that that does damage. Um, and I, I know that personally now. I know that it can hurt to cross your own boundaries and that it can hurt to feel pressed into storytelling. Not that I... Not that, you know, the, there's no parallel in yeah. that example to my story, uh, story fest experience, but I could see how that could make someone feel. I felt so raw and exposed and vulnerable. And if the people supporting me were not taking a trauma informed approach to what I was going through, it would have been a horrible experience. And I would have, I would have bailed out of it before I even got up on stage. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you didn't. I had the honor of sitting in the audience and listening to Dio's story. I I wish they'd taped. I don't know if they taped it, but like, I feel like everyone should see it or hear it, but how can folks who are listening engage with you? I know you, you shared earlier about kind of how people um, can reach out if they think they might have a story to tell or don't think they have a story to tell and want to explore that or kind of have a conversation in which you prove them wrong because everyone has a story to tell. Um, So yeah, how can people kind of connect with you if you give that information again? Oh, 100%. So you can either email me at narratives at resolvephilly.org or my other email is just my first name. So that's Dionysia, D-I-O-N- I C I A at resolvephilly.org. And whether you have a story in mind or not, if you just want to talk about narrative empowerment or storytelling, please, please reach out to me. I welcome these conversations. I really do. Oh, I love that. Well, this has been a really rich and wonderful conversation. Thank you for saying yes. I got a lot out of it. I know listeners are feeling the same. Um, You're listening to Word Radio on 900 AM, 96.1 FM, streaming live on wordradio.com, Facebook Live, and the Word Radio app. 
this is Dara Elise Lyons. I just had a wonderful conversation with Dionisia Robertson, the associate editor of Community Narratives at Resolve Philly. So get in touch with her to tell your story. We're going to take a brief break and then I'll be back with the next guest. Thank you again, Dio, for joining us. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com. 